Well, hello. Um, I got this text from Pat. He's currently in West Virginia at the, his son Jesse's church. Um, he says, praying for you, David. Thank you for preaching. Enjoy the freedom you have in the spirit. So here's my response. Oh, is that today? <laughs> and this is what I need your help with. He sends back, doesn't need to be. What is... Do I actually have an option right now? I don't... I'll have to ask him later what he meant by that. I don't know what he meant by that. So, Hebrews. Um, we are continuing in Hebrews. We are picking up the last um, section of verses dealing with Christ's superiority to angels. Um, let me just go through and give you just a brief, and I, I practiced to make it brief. Um, the big pictures that Hebrews is trying to accomplish here. So why was Hebrews written? Jewish background Christians were being tempted to replace Christ with a collection of inferior mediators. Inferior here doesn't mean bad. Uh, inferior here means lower status, uh, but not necessarily bad. So I guess something could be bad if it was inferior, but that's not the case with this. So these collection of mediators that Jewish background Christians were being tempted to replace with Christ um, were the prophets, verses 1 through 4 in chapter 1, uh, the angels, which is the section we will be finishing today, um, Moses coming up next week, Moses as uh, a mediator of Christ, uh, as a mediator of God. Um, and then finally, the biggest section, the priesthood. This is where we get into Melchizedek and that strange um, name in the midst of this book, along with the Old Testament sacrifices. I'm so happy this works. <laughs> so, um, one of the things that, uh, that makes Hebrews an enigma of sorts is what prompted the writing of Hebrews because you see this, not an attack, but an argument against um, the angels, the priesthood, Moses, and sacrifices as being these mediators between God and man, which they were in the Old Testament. But Christ has come. These people are claiming the name of Christ. Why are they returning to this? Um, one of the explanations is that, is that they got a hold of thinkers and ideas um, being pushed by certain people, um, namely um, this guy named Philo. Now, um, this is a possible explanation for the reason for the writing of Hebrews. It's not listed in Hebrews. It is not um, necessarily what was happening, but it was a teaching at the same time Hebrews um, was probably written going on in Alexandria, Egypt. So Philo, Philo is a philosopher, which is debatable. Some people say he's too religious to be a philosopher. But he was a Jewish Hellenistic, that means he just loved the Greek philosopher guys. 
right? He was a Jewish Hellenistic philosopher living in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt had many hundreds of thousands of people living there at this time. And one of the big populations living there were Jews um, as part of the diaspora who have moved out into different regions out of Israel. And what he did um, was he attempted to fuse the Old Testament with Platonic philosophy. Um, You didn't think you were going to get this this morning, did you, when you came in? (laughs) So Plato, he comes in five colors and don't leave the lid off or he dries out, right? (laughs) No, not that Plato. This is Plato with a T. Um, there's There's his dates. And Plato's big idea was that the real world was the world of invisible, immaterial ideas. He called it the world of the forms, and it's the real world. What we have here is just a fake, inferior, in the lowest possible terms, copy of these ideas. So think of an apple. You have an idea of an apple. That is the form of the apple. What makes an apple an apple? What is its essence? That's what Plato says is what an apple truly is. The apple you buy in the store is an imperfect copy of this immaterial form. You get that? We think of the, the apple as real and the idea as some sort of abstract and, and, and weird, and it's for philosophers who make no money because they got a philosophy degree. <laughs> so that's Plato's in a nutshell. So the material world is the world of shadow, imperfect copies of the pure idea of things. So how does this fit with Hebrews? Philo loved Plato. Unfortunately, a lot of early church fathers, apart from the apostles, loved Plato as well. And other guys like Aristotle were loved by other church fathers like Aquinas. They tried to make them play along together, Jesus and uh, the, the philosophers. So Philo's big idea was that God cannot deal directly with mankind. He needs mediators to do it for him. This sounds biblical in a way, right? We have prophets, we have priests. Prophets do what? They represent God to the people. You know, thus saith the Lord. They make a pronouncement. What does a priest do? It's just the opposite. He represents the people back to God. He offers sacrifice. He brings the people. He's the people's representative. But, but Philo, what Philo did was he took these ideas of angels, Moses, um, the high priest, and he amplified them beyond what the Old Testament said. Here's an example of him on angels. And the father who created the universe was given to his archangel and most ancient logos, a preeminent gift, to stand the confines of both and separate that which had been created from the creator. Neither, this is the angel, neither being uncreated as God, nor yet created as you. Now, how you do that, how you have an uncreated and not created thing at the same time is... That's a trick I want to see pulled off. 
that doesn't make sense, but being in the midst between the two extremes. So you have angels as not just mere messengers, you have them amplified into something that's almost uncreated. Philo would think of it as a thought of God that he has, that he's moving towards us, a logos. What's logos from? In the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. See, in the Old Testament, you have the personification of wisdom in the Psalms. This idea that Christ as the word, the word of God. So Philo takes these angels and he amplifies them into these messengers that doesn't even call them created. Um, Philo on the high priest. And he, just to add to this, Moses should be included here because he considered Moses a high priest. The highest of high priests was Moses. He, the high priest, when taken in conjunction with others, is insignificant in point of number, but when he is looked at by himself, he becomes numerous. He is tribunal, tribunal, an entire council, the whole people, the entire race of mankind. He is a sort of nature bordering on God inferior indeed to him, but superior to man. Is this the priest of the Old Testament? No, he's super priest. He's, they're super angels. They're... So is this what Hebrews is reacting to? I find it very convincing myself um, because it was written at the same time. It was written in a Jewish setting. Um, and it really matches with it. Some people say the writer of Hebrews has copied from Philo. That is not the case. I think he's arguing against Philo, and I think it will be clear. But I'm not going to push this any farther than this other than to inform you that these ideas were going around. Why angels? Why Moses? Why the high priest? There were guys pushing this stuff. So where have we been so far? In chapter 1, the Son is God's new messenger. Guess what? He's also the message. Imagine a king sending out a messenger, and the messenger comes up to somebody who the message is for and says, I have a message for you from the king. Me. (laughs) That's what Christ is. He's the last full and complete final messenger of God. Then we got, went through the son's qualifications to represent God. In chapter 1, you see all these descriptions of Jesus, the son, and his qualities. What is his qualities? Well, he's divine, as we'll find out. The, uh, the son is the creator in verse 2. It also mentions this in Colossians. Now, I know this four-year-old little girl... Absolutely adorable, and she happened to be in a story from last week as well. But she is, we just keep going to the well on her because she just comes up with great stories. So this little girl went with her mommy to go pick up her brother and sister from school, and they were waiting for school to get out, and she was playing on the slide on the playground with the other kids. And some bully 
gotten in her way um, and offended her highly. Such that she started crying on, on the slide, ran to her mommy, and as her mommy comforted her and she finally calmed down, she told her mommy, I wish Jesus hadn't created that guy. Great theology. <laughs> Bad application. <laughs> Jesus is called the creator here right at the start. In addition, he is an exact copy or representation of God. The Son has the same nature as God. What is a nature? It's something that makes you, it's an essential quality you have that makes you, you, and not something else. The Father and the Son share all the same attributes. There is no diff, essential difference between the two. The Son is the inheritor of all things. He owns everything. And by the way, that's also a proof for his deity because, as John Frame says, you can't have two owners of all things, <laughs> right? You can only have one. There can only be one owner of all things. He is currently sitting at God's right hand. Not so the angels. Remember, this is a contrast to the angels. And by the way, if that wasn't enough, actually this last one is sufficient, he is worshipped by angels in verse 6. So if you're God and you had a mediator that represents you who had all the same qualities that you have, you would think you would be represented rightly, right? You would No sufficiency in this mediator. He can represent my side correctly and perfectly. And that's what um, God in deity, God takes on, the son takes on, the son has the nature of deity and later he takes on the nature of humanity. He takes on human flesh. Then after this, we had a warning. Now, there are warnings all throughout Hebrews, and it's warnings about walking away from Christ and returning to these other inferior, these other inferior mediators. If the unheeded message of angels was, was met with just rest, rest, uh, retribution, as in the Old Testament penalties, how much more so will be the unheeded message of the Son? These warnings are important and they're written to so-called Christians. How are professing Christians supposed to take this warning? How are we to take this warning? Is this warning for us? Is it once saved, always saved? Is it possible to walk away? To become apostate. 
Is he talking to people who were never saved and they just pretended? Or do the scriptures recognize a status other than believer and unbeliever? Somebody who who is in the church visibly, hangs out in the church, talks the talk, uh, maybe even deceiving themselves, and uh, yet was, has never come to faith in Christ. Church, churches throughout history are divided on this issue, right? This is where infant baptism would come in, that you are a part of the church without being a believer. That's covenantal thought. So there are different ways of looking at this, and this is an important issue. We don't have time for it. Um, but it will come up over and over and over again, and I'm sure Pat will cover it. If not, he has to now because I put it on the tape. Okay. So then we move on to the second half of the mediator equation. You got God on one side, now you have man, the other party represented. So Hebrews 2, 5 through 9, um, we have the Old Testament passages talking about man was made a little lower than the angels. Right? And the son was a man. Therefore, the son was lower than the angels. See, that's philosophy, right? That's modus ponens. If anybody knows what that means. If, if the man was a little lower than the angels and the son was a man, therefore, then, the son was lower than the angels. But wait a minute, we just said the son is superior to the angels. How can this be, Right? How can the son be superior when it says he was lowered? Well, it says only for a little while. And it was for the higher purpose that he, uh, it was for a higher purpose that he went lower so that he could taste death for everyone. Death, what does that, what does that have to do with it? But why? Why does he have to taste Death. And this is what leads us into this week's passage. So that was uh, 20 minutes of introduction. <laughs> so let's open our Bibles. I've got to get my Bible out of sleep mode here. <laughs> Hebrews 2 starting in verse, well, let's start in verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one father. 
for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We pray that you would, as you always do, pierce hearts with it, uh, change uh, untrue thinking, untrue beliefs, increase our faith, grow roots to our faith that stretch out and will hold fast in the storms of of, um, everything antithetical to you and your righteousness. Lord, we just praise you and thank you in your holy name. Amen. So we see here in verse 10, the purpose of, this, of sending the Son was to what? To bring many sons to glory. That was the reason the Son was sent. How will the Son accomplish this task? It says, in verse uh, 10, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So by perfecting here, we don't obviously mean that Jesus was imperfect and he needed to be made perfect. Right? Once you get behind in perfection, what? You can never catch up. Because perfection's what's demanded of you. Once you trip in the race, you can never catch up to righteousness because that's what's demanded of you. The perfecting here is um, is more like tested obedience. Christ, who took on the word who took on human flesh needed to be tested in obedience to the law. He needed to be tempted and suffer because temptation is a suffering. He needed to suffer under temptation and, and follow through and uh, pass the test. Just like Adam and Eve had to pass the test in the garden, right? They could do anything they wanted to Um, As someone said, they could have put a rope swing in the tree of good and evil, and that would have been all right. They just couldn't eat from the fruit of the tree of good and evil. That was their test. Christ must be tested to show that he is obedient. Turn to Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. 
How do I know what I just said is true, not just my opinion? Exactly. <laughs> Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe. He learned obedience. Christ, in flesh, learned. He, was, he didn't know everything. Now I know it gets weird because he's God as well. He has two natures. But in his flesh, he had to learn. He had to show his obedience. So he was being perfected in the sense of um, tested obedience. This is what will make him be able to say in verse 11 that he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So what is a brother? Now, I know we have biological brothers and oftentimes, biological brothers are, are not brethren to each other, right? So what makes you a brethren as opposed to a, a, a biological brother is that you go through shared hardships and suffering, right? King Henry V in Shakespeare's play, after the Battle of Agincourt, he gives his speech and he says, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. As to be humanity's representative, Christ became our brother in the sense that he shared our hardships and suffering. That's why he can call us a brother and brother. It'd be kind of silly for... King Henry, if he stayed in England and after the battle was won by his troops, comes over and he says, we're all brothers. No, you weren't here. You didn't fight. You didn't risk anything. Okay. So by for perfecting or crafting or fashioning through suffering a trailblazer, uh, Many of the commentators that I have read say the author, we're here where it says the author would be better saying trailblazer or pioneer of your faith. Somebody who strikes out ahead of you and clears a path. Who will cut a path for them to glory. Okay. So how will the son accomplish this task? By being perfected through suffering, by taking on a human nature, he is flesh and blood in verse 14. Why must he become a human? Why must he take on human flesh and blood? A real flesh and blood, not a pretend one that's, you know, when you're God, you can make yourself look like stuff but not really be that thing, right? He took on real flesh and blood because only a real human can do what for mankind? Huh? Die. And why do you have to die? Why does he have to die? Because that is the penalty for sin. Death is the penalty for sin. For the wages, what's a wage? What, no, what's your owed, right? 
you don't thank your boss for your, you don't necessarily, when I was handing my check last week, I didn't thank him because it wasn't, he didn't do anything. It was my wage, right? It's what I'm owed for what I did. For the wages of sin is death. By taking on a human nature, flesh and blood, and subjecting himself to death, um, the son is able to pay the penalty due for, due for our sin. This is why, and this is why it will be brought up later, that the animal sacrifice wasn't sufficient. Why wasn't it sufficient? Because it wasn't human flesh and blood. And why, well, what if they killed a man for somebody's sin? Well, how many people does that cover? One person. How do you cover everyone? You, you combine God with man, and the death of that man will cover the sins of everyone. So for God to be just, sin must be punished. The day you eat of this, you shall surely die, he's told Adam and Eve. So he, he accomplished this task of bringing many sons to glory by being perfected through suffering, by taking on a human nature so that he could die as a human for the sins of the people. And by dying to dethrone the king of death, the devil. This passage is difficult because of the words used. It it says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, the devil. Now, on a quick reading of that, it sounds like the power of death means that Satan has the power to kill who he wishes, when he wishes. Is that what he's talking about? We have other passages that are clear that God is in control of who lives and who dies. So in what sense is Satan then the king of death, the So it's not in the sense that, hey, you over there, die. I was pointing at no one. I was pointing right in the middle. (laughs) It's not in that sense. It's more in the sense that Christ broke that evil power which brought death into the world, as Spurgeon said. It's also that the... Satan's major job is to accuse us of what? Of the things we actually did. Sometimes the best move by Satan is to tell the truth and not lie. He's the father of lies, and that's how this whole business of death got started because he lied and deceived Eve and Adam and Eve. But sometimes to get what he wants done, he will tell the truth. And the truth here is that we are sinners deserving death. That is the penalty for sin.
So he, as an accuser, um, that's where he is keeping us in the realm of death. Keeping us feeling guilty, keeping us, accusing us. Spurgeon says the following, the devil comes to us in our lifetime and he tempts us by telling us that our guilt will certainly prevail against us. That the sins of our youth and our former transgressions are still in our bones. I like that phrase. And that when we sleep in the grave, our sins shall rise up against us. The death of Christ has destroyed the power that the devil has over us to tempt us on account of our guilt. The sting of death is sin. So Christ, in dying, dethrones death. There's a great book title. I haven't read the book, but the title is so powerful, I don't think I need to read the book. (laughs) It's by John Owen, and it's called The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That that sermon is, I mean, that title is a sermon in itself. And I just love that. How does God kill death? He kills himself. He has his son killed. That's how death is killed. The death of death and the death of Christ. How has Satan become powerless in death? He is undermined. The son undermines or undercuts his ability to accuse us of our sins and say, you deserve death. And that it says it keeps us and makes us a slave in this life. It keeps us doing it. Look at that, last page. Home stretch. I was really worried. Because I thought I had a 10-pound message in a 5-pound bag to put it in. So let's move on. What's great about Hebrews 2 at the end is it summarizes, there's a summarization of what just happened. And this is where we will bring to a close the talk on Christ compared to angels, the superior of Christ's angels. Remember, this is the subject matter here. Why is Christ superior to that of the angels? Whether it be the angels as they come to us in the Old Testament, without any kind of um, amplifying or diminishing their role, or is, as Philo says, these angels are almost uncreated beings who come to us and mediate for God on our behalf, mediate for God and on our behalf. So in summary, let's read this. Let me just uh, start in 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Who are the descendants of Abraham? Is this physical descendants? No, because not all of Israel is of Israel. It's those who by faith, trust in Christ, are the descendants of Abraham. I am a descendant of Abraham. You, if you trust 
in Christ are a descendant of Abraham because it was Abraham's faith that saved him, not his inclusion in an ethnic um, population. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, Christ, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So Christ took on a human nature so that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. Be a mediator on behalf of man. That's, remember, that's what a priest is. What is this talk of propitiation? If this was a Jeopardy card that flipped over, propitiation, what's the question? It says, God demands propitiation for sin. The tested son offered up himself. A propitiation. Anybody here have a, get a ticket lately? I did, but I, I actually had to pay. It was in Washington. It was the first ticket I ever got. Um, it was true. <laughs> I, don't, I don't deny it. It was the back road up in the, 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 the furthest part of the continental U.S. you could get. Um, coming over a hill. It was in a minivan. Come on. You don't give tickets to people in minivans. <laughs> and so... I was given this sheet and it said I had to pay this much money as a penalty. And um, um, they have a very cool program up there where you, if you don't get another ticket, if it's your first ticket, if you don't get another ticket in six months, um, they'll take it off your record and California will never find out. So I took them up on the offer and since I wasn't going back there <laughs> to Washington, <laughs> I was able to keep the terms of the, the conditions of having it cleared. But what is the penalty I paid? What was that for? What was the money for? Is to pay a penalty. Is to propitiate um, the state of Washington. It's a penalty payment for my sin of driving just barely over the speed limit. <laughs> So propitiate is to pay a penalty price. Remember, the wages of sin is death. You've got to pay the price. Old Testament priestly sacrifices could not pay this. These people are thinking that they can return back to these sacrifices that did nothing because they weren't sufficient and they were never intended to be. They were intended to show you Christ in the future. The Old Testament looks forward to Christ and his finished, final, complete work. They weren't intended to cover your sins. It says in Hebrews 10, as we'll get to, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Can't get any more clear than that. 
Christ, as a great high priest, offered up himself to propitiate God. The penalty payment is not paid to Satan. It's paid to God. God is the one who has been violated through our sin. When you hear the phrase, save, who are you saved from? Anybody? The wrath of God, or God himself. Take out the wrath of God. I know that sounds harsh, but that's biblical. It says we are saved from the wrath of God. So imagine yourself in a river. You get swept in. It just rains. You're in the middle because rivers tend to keep people in them in the middle because they flow faster in the middle than they do on the side. So you're stuck and you can't swim well enough and you're stuck in there and you can't rescue. If you could rescue yourself, were you in trouble? Do you need to be saved if you can get yourself out of the situation? I saved myself. No, then you weren't in trouble, right? (laughs) You need to be rescued. You You need somebody to come in from the outside and pluck you out of that situation because you're incapable of doing it yourself. You're going to, you're in this river, this raging river, and at the end of this river is a sheer drop waterfall with jagged rocks at the bottom. That's God's wrath. That's what awaits you at the end. Satan isn't at the end. God is at the end. What is Satan doing? He's along the shore cheering, saying, it's not so bad, stay there. (laughs) Because he knows what's coming and he wants that to happen. So Christ comes and propitiates God. He says, since therefore we have been justified by his blood. Blood meaning his death. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5, 9. So in conclusion, as God, looking back to chapter 1, Christ is the perfect prophet of God. He is morally perfect as well as tested perfection. Why didn't Christ, perfect, just parachute down and die on the cross? Why did he have to live a life? Because he had to be tested in obedience to the law of God. He had to follow the law of God. We sang that song. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that what? We might become the righteousness of God in Christ. There's a twofold aspect. We need his active obedience applied to our account and we need the penalty payment of his death applied to our account. We need his life and we need his death. So as God, Christ is the perfect prophet of God, As man, Christ is the perfect priest, having presented men to God as sanctified, holy, on account of his perfected life, 
and the sacrifice of himself to appease the holy God's wrath. So if you haven't, if you don't know this Christ, as the Hebrew Christians were surely told, and they were told not to forget what they have been told, um, this rescue is for you. This rescue is for all sinners. Guess what? That's everyone. For all have sinned and fall short of his glory. And for those of us who have claimed the name of Christ and have sat in church for 55 years, this same church for 55 years like I have, it's a message that to persevere in Christ. This warning, I believe, is for me as well as someone who professes faith in Christ. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, I just do thank you so much for this wonderful book, The Supremacy of Christ Over All Others. The most important figure in world history and the creator and inheritor of all things. Lord, we just do thank you for the work of Christ on our behalf. Lord, I would pray that those here who do not possess faith in Christ, after hearing what Christ has done, would come to faith in Christ, Lord. Believe. Lord, my prayer is that they would believe. Father, I just do thank you, and we just do praise you. In your holy name, amen.